All right, hey you guys, good morning. So good to be with you. I know some of you um, new with us, as Kim mentioned earlier, if you were you know, just coming in late, let me just welcome you. I'm so glad that you're here. I know some of you probably came in because mom said, we're going to church. Okay, turn the cartoons off, we're going to church, whatever it is. Uh, but I'm really, really glad that you're with us. And there's, there I am. It's a wonderful moment for me. Um, but uh, I'm really glad that you're here. You know, I just want to let you know, I, I am, we are, we are so for moms. And that um, God is so pro-mom. You know, one of the things, we were, even as the staff as we were praying beforehand, before the, the, the service began, one of the things Jesus is, acknowledges on the cross is his concern for his mom. And he looks at, you know, John, uh, the disciple, and he says, you, you watch out for her, you take care of her, because she's not going to have me anymore. And um, there's clearly a concern that God has for moms. And as you heard in the blessing earlier, there are, there are from all different kinds of angles about how there's brokenheartedness and celebration and joy and all of it in together. God is so for you moms and moms who want to be moms and moms who have lost moms and kids who have strained relationships with their moms and moms who have strained relationships with their kids. I mean, there is just, God is so for you moms. Um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a kid who grew up with the only child of a single mom, uh, single moms, God is so with you and so for you. And, um, you know, we, we might get a few things wrong today, but we're going to get right, hopefully. It's our hope. You get that God is so for you, moms. And uh, would you be honored today? We are so grateful that you decided to spend a part of your Mother's Day with us. And uh, we're just honored about that. We're just so blessed by that. You know, um, uh, as we continue in our series, um, just called What If, we're, we're looking at some pretty important questions. I think they're questions probably, is, um, as we really look at it, it's questions that, that you know, I would say are probably some of the most pivotal in our lives. They're questions we wrestle with even as, uh, as kids as we grow up, as, as parents we wrestle with our own kids and their faith journey. And the, the question is this. We're looking at this series called What If? And what we'd say is we looked at all these things in Jesus' life, and some of you who are, again, you came maybe because mom said we're going to church. Maybe some of you have been investigating who Jesus is for a while. But we're looking at all these claims and all these actions of, of Jesus who, you know, we kind of wonder, what, what if they were true? What if, this actually, what if this is actually true and he really was who he says he was? And what if all the people reacting around him are actually, you know, kind of, they're onto something here? For some of you, that might be where you are in your own kind of faith journey. Just what if this is true? And for the rest of us, the, the, the place where we are in this sort of faith journey is, well, what if we acted like it was true? <laughs> what if we actually lived and believed and sort of behaved as if those things were true? Not just that they were theoretical, but that they were actually influencing our lives because all of Jesus' life, we believe, has huge implications. And so this is where we are. It's been a great series as we've been talking about it. And as we move forward today, uh, even in Mother's Day, we want to make sure this focus is about Jesus and about how much he loves us. And so uh, would you pray with me and we'll get into today's content. Let's pray. Father, as we are here on a day that honors moms, we know that your heart draws near to them. Not that in any other day you aren't drawn near to them, but today we just highlight that love. Father, we're grateful for our own mothers that would give to us life. We're grateful for um, the fact that some of us have begun that journey and others of us are longing to be in that journey. Father, we're grateful for what we would call the ministry of motherhood, that so many of us have it. Father, we're grateful that you are here in our midst and that you bring about healing and hope for those of us who need it. Jesus, today as we consider all of what it is to walk with you, at least another facet of what that looks like, would it not be merely lip service? Might it be our whole heart? who serves and looks toward you. Father, for those who are investigating you, for those who are trying to see if this is all something that they could actually get their arms around, Father, would you reveal yourself? 
in no small way. Whether it's through the celebration of moms or through it's the celebration of your word or through the, the response in prayer, whatever else that it might be, God, would you reveal yourself in real ways today? Father, as we kind of gather each week, we have a moment to pause. And before brunch and before phone calls and flowers and everything else that happens today, before the week goes on and everything else, we just want to pause. That you might speak to us, to the depths of our heart, to the, to the, the parts of our soul which we can't really articulate. God, would you give to us words that we do not have? Would you place them in our heart? Would you speak to us, Father, for just a few moments? And so, Jesus, we pause that you might speak. Father, we long that you would speak to us throughout the rest of today, that our whole heart, our whole self would be moved toward you, not to manipulate you, not to try to get you to do something, Father, but believing on the reality that you already love us and would do everything you could to make us whole. And so, Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I have to tell you, as um, you look at, you have, you have an outline that came in your bulletin if you want to pull that out. It's, this happens every so often, just so you know, I... I, I I have to print the outline, I have to get the outline done on like Friday morning, so usually I finish it by Thursday night, and I turn it in, and then I have all Friday to kind of consider what I've just now put on paper, and so sometimes I have to kind of rearrange a few things, so they're going to see some things on there, and I'm going to rearrange the order right now, and some of you are going to go, he didn't say, and I don't know what that means, and I apologize. I had to go back over the notes and go, I want to change a few things, so, but it's already been printed, so just bear with me. Um, on your outline, you can follow along mostly. All the scripture will be on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're in, in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. We'll, we'll bounce around a little bit, but that's primarily what we'll be today. Um, so if you want to follow along, great. And as you're kind of getting settled and figuring out what all of the, you know, the outline means and what stuff I'm going to leave out, consider this. Um, what are some things, just, just in your own head, you don't have to, this, usually I like, well, we can do, we'll do it. We'll do, it's Mother's Day, we're participating, we're writing thinking notes, we're doing all kinds of stuff, so participate with me. What are some things? Uh, in your life, in your kid's life, whatever you remember, in which the old version of something is better than the new version. Think about it for a second. Old version is better than the new version. Go ahead. Wow, we really need new things in our hot lives, don't we? We really cannot appreciate anything. anything anybody? Music. Music. Oh, music. Good. What? Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> Amen, brother. What else? Pokemon. Okay, I don't know how to answer that. Okay, good. What else? What's that? Tonka trucks. Yeah, the old ones are steel. The new ones are plastic. Yeah, good. What else? Food. Old food? What's that? I just, how long can I leave this sandwich in the refrigerator before it becomes good? <laughs> That's okay. I know you, were, you meant something else, but now it's funny. Okay, good. What else? What? TV. Old TV's better. You know, my kids watch the Cosby show. They would rather watch that than any show in the world. I'm like so grateful for that. It's so funny. I appreciate it differently now than I ever have mine. What else? Wine. Wine. How dare you say that? No, okay, yeah. Good. No one says, hey, it's brand new. It's practically grape juice. Do you want some? Yeah. What else? Okay, so like my, I'll just give you a couple examples I noticed today in my own house. My, um, first of all, Amanda has, uh, she it has, over the past five years, it's moved from our own bed into the closet, but she had for the first 
10 years of our marriage, I would say, uh, her stuffed animal that she grew up with. And she would like, I was literally jealous of this like dog that had like no eye and was like, you know, like this floppy ear dog. And she would, st- I was like, hey, snuggle me, not the dog. Get that thing out of here. But so she had that thing. Now it's in the closet. But my daughter has a, a blanket that she still sleeps with every night, which, and she's eight years old and cannot, I mean, she cannot fall asleep without that thing if we can't find it. Or if, we, if she falls asleep on the couch and I carry her upstairs and she doesn't instantly sense through the whatever kind of power she has that that blanket is right next to her then she like wakes up and freaks out like I'm not sleeping until we find that blanket you know and that thing is just a rag it's a total mess it's like we've had to repair it surgically a couple different times and the new it wouldn't be like hey we got you a new blanket she wouldn't be like oh thank goodness this one's kind of getting old right nobody says that anybody have a blanket for a a large portion of their life anyone admit it yes some of you still have it yeah some of you took it to college I know right and the idea is that there's an emotional attachment around some of these things to which a new thing just simply cannot replace those. And when you have Jesus who is doing all of his ministry, he's conducting all of his ministry, it is the new thing that he brings about that people go, ah, I'm not sure. You have a new thing. Jesus is talking about all kinds of new stuff and what he plans to do in people's lives and what he plans to do with the existing system of things. And people are like, you know what? We kind of got an emotional attachment to the old thing. The old one's pretty good. We know that you have new stuff, but we like the old. And we're not ready to give that up yet. And so you can imagine now, based if you're with us last week too, you can can imagine based on all of the social norms that Jesus is challenging between purity and cleanliness, between uh, society and all of the people that have high stature and those that have low stature and influence and not influence. And what he keeps saying about all these bizarre things about if you want to finish first, you should finish last. And if you want to, you know, if you want to save your life, you should lose. He keeps saying all these bizarre things. And all of what he's saying, he's saying these new things people had never expected. And people have a reaction when they say the old thing has to go and the new thing has to come. People react. They're not ready for that. We like the old, they say. So this is kind of the context we're talking about. We're looking at Jesus in Luke chapter 5. Now, here, let's take a look on your outline if you want to follow along. Luke chapter 5, verse 33, it says this. Uh, They said to him, let me stop right there. Uh, this to give you, again, context. Last, this is kind of a second part of last week's message. Last week, you have Jesus who is dining with people. He invites a guy to follow him who's a tax collector. Tax collectors are hated. These are people who are notoriously corrupt. And this is a guy who Jesus invites to follow him. This guy's name goes by two names, Levi or Matthew. And he invites Levi to follow him. Levi then says, hey, let's, invite, let's come over to my house, Jesus. And Levi famously invites all of these people who are notorious sinners to have dinner. And all of the Pharisees, these religious leaders, at least these ones who are watching Jesus go, they ask the disciples, why, are you, does, why does your teacher eat with these people? Doesn't he know what he's doing? These people are unclean. They're, they're gross. We know what they've done. They're the reason why God hasn't rescued us. Why are you with them? And so Jesus has these people who are observing him. He's called the guy who's basically a, a traitor to follow him. And that guy's now having a party with all these people who don't belong anywhere else in society, and the religious elite who hold the power, who are generally regarded as the most righteous by everybody in the world, in, the, in that world, these people say, Jesus, do you know what you're doing? They said to him, these guys are looking at Jesus, and they keep on nagging him. And here's what they say, verse 33. Then uh, they, said, they said to him, John's disciples is referring to, um, this is referring to John the Baptist or John the baptizer. John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, which is their own group of people. But yours go on eating and drinking. Now the Pharisees, if you were with us last week, the Pharisee, the word is literally, it's, it's perushim in, um, in Hebrew. It's a word that means the separated ones. These are people who have said, 
we're not like everybody else. We would like to retain our own righteousness by quarantining ourselves and other people away from us so that we're not infected by them. We want to be separated out. Now, these are people who, uh, who are, you know, they're, they're all over Jesus. They're grumbling and complaining about him. And then they look at, they say, we are people who have this thing where we fast, we, meaning we don't eat for periods of time. And they say, well, there's another guy who we think is pretty right on. This is this guy, John the Baptizer, who's out in the wilderness. He's eating locusts and honey and nothing else, and all of his people are following. He's calling people, this guy, John the Baptist, has a ministry of what's called repentance, which just means turning around. It doesn't mean whatever it means when someone on Channel 40 says it. I don't know what they mean, but they just, it just is this idea of turning around. And so John the Baptist is calling people to turn their life around, he's giving, and he also has this ministry of baptism, which means he's immersing people in the water, which is where we get the term Baptist. Now, he's calling his people to this kind of really austere kind of righteousness in which they fast, they don't eat. And the Pharisees say, we like what he does. He separated himself out, you know, kind of calling people to righteousness. We like that. And they're fasting. And our people fast. But your guys, the guys that follow you, Jesus, they don't stop eating. Why aren't they fasting like us? Because we kind of know how we're supposed to be. And why don't the, why don't they, maybe if they're not like us, why aren't they like John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples? What's up with that? The word fasting has a couple different meanings. There's a couple different ways it translates. Sometimes the way it's used in ritual fasting is the word tanith, which means humiliation. It means that there is some part of fasting, at least in terms of the way it's understood by everybody except Jesus, who begins to start messing with it a little bit, is that it has something to do with putting on an air of humiliation. And in the social context, what it was designed to do is to say, Okay, there's a couple different purposes and times in which we fast. One of them is for uh, mourning. Like, you know, you lose someone in your life, then you mourn. If you have uh, a need for repentance or penitence is what's sometimes called, then you fast to show that you're in that place of needing God's forgiveness and you want to turn your life around. There's also holy days like Yom Kippur where there's, you know, there's extended periods of fasting. But there is a sense here which when you're in mourning, whatever else it is, you are alerting everybody else What is going on inside by this exterior behavior? I'm feeling terrible, and I need you to know about it. I need you to come. The idea would be then for the community to go, that person's person's fasting. And so we should come around them and be with them. So that's why you have people who sit in the house of people who mourn together when they go, that person is fasting and mourning, and we'll be around them together. It is intended to make a display of how you actually feel so other people can respond. Now, Jesus is most definitely not opposed to fasting. What he's opposed to is how what it has become, how it has morphed into something else. He has this conversation. He tells a story to some people in, in Luke 18, which he gets right in the face of these people who believe themselves to be incredibly righteous. He tells this story. Here's what it says in Luke 18. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Just stop right there. These are two people. Again, Luke has already given us an example of people who are no, they're so far apart from each other on the spectrum of righteousness. If you asked a person in the first century and said, who's a righteous person? They would say, Pharisee. Well, who's an unrighteous person? Tax collector. And Jesus says there are these two people in the temple at the same time, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Uh, verse 11 says this in Luke, Luke 18. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. For example, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, just to make a point here, the Pharisees in the temple in the same space 
as the tax collector. And yet what's being written as Jesus tells this parable is that the, the Pharisee stood by himself. He has separated himself out. He has achieved his separatedness from everybody else. And he looks and he thanks God. God, thank you that I'm not like everybody else. That is so wonderful. I'm such a gift to you, God. And thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, that tax collector who is so unrighteous. Then he says this, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Wow. There's a guy in the temple. There's, there's more to this story, which we'll read. <laughs> but at our pace, by the time we get to Luke 18, it'll be 2047. But just, we'll get there eventually. But there's this other part of the story where this tax collector is beating his chest and going, God, forgive me, have mercy on me. And Jesus then says, hey, the guy who's kind of saying I need God's mercy is the guy who goes home right with God, not the guy who thinks I bless God by my own righteousness because I'm so awesome. But you have this, this picture here where a, a Pharisee who says, I fast twice a week. The Bible doesn't prescribe twice weekly fasting. He just said, I want to do it. Probably Monday and Thursday, it seems to be the days. Historically, they would do this. But there's two days a week where this person is publicly announcing, everybody, look at my humiliation. Do you see how sorry I am? Everybody, notice what I'm doing. Isn't this, aren't, isn't it, aren't I very righteous? I'm so righteous that my humiliation, this situation in which I put on myself, the fasting, is now observable to everybody else. Isn't that so great? Don't you wish you were a little bit more like me? You see, there's something in this. Jesus seems to be kind of getting at something. It's not that he's against fasting. I mean, going without a meal to honor God, he's not opposed to that. Do it or don't do it. But don't brag about it. Don't wear it like it's some kind of badge, he keeps saying. Uh, um, listen, this is Matthew, Matthew 6, 16, says this. Jesus speaking on fasting. He says, when you fast, meaning you're going to do it, there will be times where it will be appropriate to fast. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others their fasting. In other words, they're living out this kind of humiliation picture for everybody to see. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. Meaning, if everybody goes, look how, look how righteous you are by how, much you, how humiliated you are, that is so great. Look, they're really serious about their faith. That's your reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, what he's saying is this. There is a reason and a time for fasting, and it matters, and it's really good. But if you make it about how you can get God to look at you and go, well done, you fasted, you get a gold star. You really did a great job. Gold stars for fasting, gold stars for your righteousness. Everybody can see that. That's really great. Missing the point. It's not what this is about. Any practice, which is a sacred discipline in some capacity or another, has this little hidden secret inside of it. Which is that anything that can be cut, that is good, that's about us orienting our own lives toward God, those things can be subtly, so easily, there's a very, very small piece of it that can be about worshiping us. You know, I do this so that God would recognize me. I do this so that I can manipulate God to do things for me. You know, there's this other part of it which says if we really, people in church have a, have, a, have a little bit of a reputation for this. Maybe you've seen people like this, especially people who are investigating, you see people like this, who wear their kind of religious practices, these kinds of things that aren't necessarily prescribed, but may be good, who wear these things as a badge as if they're a little bit better than other people. 
Jesus is going, don't wear the badge. If you want to do this stuff, do it, but don't do it to get credit from other people. Just do it, or don't. But don't make it about other people. Back to this conversation, Jesus and the Pharisees. Verse 34. So they ask him, hey, why don't you fast like John and us and everybody else? Why don't you do that? Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now he's saying, remember, fasting is about humiliation. It's about a longing for God's kingdom to come. It's about looking at the Romans and going, the Romans are here. We don't like them. They're kind of taking over our place. It's about looking at their life and going, we wish it could be better. We wish God's kingdom would come, that the life of God's kingdom would be evident among us. We're praying for that. Our fasting is an anticipation of that kingdom to come. What Jesus preaches over and over and over again, what the Gospels tell us is that Jesus keeps on saying, God's kingdom presence is among you now. And people keep going, what are you talking, Jesus keeps going, the kingdom presence is breaking into the reality right now, it's breaking into the present world right now. John, the book of John uses the word eternal life, is breaking in right now. The book of Matthew uses the, uses the term kingdom of heaven. Luke, Luke and Mark use the term kingdom of God. And now God's kingdom is breaking in. And Jesus uses a very weird analogy. He says, can you tell people at a wedding to fast when the bridegroom is with them? In other words, the groom's here. The party's happening. People don't long for something that they really hope for if it's right there in their midst. Have you guys ever had the experience? I remember like my, um, there's, there's times where we'll all get in the car. Um, we'll get every kid in the car, which takes 45 minutes to get everybody in the car after back and forth trips to the bathroom, the, the shoes getting lost. I have one shoe, but not the other one. I have one flip-flop and one, you know, left shoe. And they're both, you know, I have a left flip-flop and left shoe. And we're like, tough, you know, get in the car. And there's the, all of this. And we get in the car finally. After all this hassle, I'll look at Amanda and I'll go, where are the keys? And she'll look at me and go, what are you talking about? I go, where are the keys? And the kids are like starting to scream and cry. You can just, the temperature's elevated in the car because they haven't yet turned the car on. And we're sitting there and you can just imagine how this is all happening. Everybody's temperature and hunger rise, anger rises. There's soon to be a full-on brawl in the backseat. And it's like, what do we do? You know, and I'm like, where are the, you know, where, and I'm not exactly calm about this. You know, it's not like I'm like, dear. Where do we put the keys? I just want to know. And I, I, I'm like, where are the keys? Get the keys. Where are the keys? And she's looking at me and she goes, they're in your hand. I know. That's just, we're good. <laughs> What's happening here is that Jesus says, you keep longing for something. You're asking people to, uh, to engage in a practice which is about longing, not only for, it's about mourning the fact that God's presence has not yet been revealed in the way we expect it to be in his kingdom yet. And Jesus is going, It's right here. Stop acting like it's not here. He uses the term bridegroom to describe himself, which is an incredibly bold statement. You know, often you have this imagery of uh, of marriage imagery between God and his people throughout all the Bible, particularly throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And Jesus says, the bridegroom, referring to himself. Now, look at this. This is in Isaiah 54. You don't have to turn there. It's just really quick. This is just an idea of what this looks like. For your maker is your husband. This is God speaking to his people through the prophet Isaiah. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Now, it's not really, I mean, that's a pretty clear analogy. And Jesus says, the wedding's happening. The groom is here. Party. Stop being all, we're so sad that God's, it's right here. It's like you've you've been at a wedding before where someone in the like bridal party is bitter about the bride being married. You know, you can tell. Like, everybody else is, like, crying the tears of joy. And that person's looking at him like, really? This is all you could do? This is the best you could do? Huh. 
You know, like you have that sense, you can tell, and you're like, this is so tragic for this. They're they so missing out on how fun this is. Don't ruin it for everybody else. Don't be that person. Enjoy it. This is a celebration. Jesus is saying, this is a reason to celebrate. How can you not feast at a celebration? You've been somewhere before, perhaps, where someone's like on a really strict diet, and you're like, it's a pizza party at the end of the year for the kids' baseball team or whatever it is, and they're like, oh, I, I'll, just, I don't, I'll just have water. I'll eat later. And you're like, Pfft. We lost. We lost every game, but we all got a little trophy. Celebrate with us. Come on now. Let's all get in. No, I don't. I just, I don't really, I don't. You're like, you're ruining everything. And Jesus is saying, don't be that person. The reason why we don't have all of this other stuff is because we don't do all this fasting. Because fasting is about mourning, and we're not mourning. We're celebrating. So celebrate. Verse 35. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. In other words, Jesus is just giving a hint. Right now, God's ministry is inaugurated. It's not fulfilled. It's not fully done. Not everything that God plans to do is done, but it's inaugurated. And there'll be a moment when me, the bridegroom, will be taken away from you. This is kind of alluding to the cross. And he's saying that, that'll be a, that's appropriate to mourn that death. Verse 36. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new one will, will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now, there's two pictures here, okay? One is this. You have a picture of a cloth. Now, I, I have not done a lot of like, I, I got an A in, in home ec when I was in eighth grade because I did double the work. Because it was tied to two, ter- I made a pillow. One looked like a surfboard. It was terrible. And I made another one with a football helmet. They were both terrible. But because I did two, I got an A. Other than that, I was terrible. But I didn't, th- but the idea here is there is, a, there is a sewing analogy here, which I do not totally understand, except to say this. Material shrinks. You know, and so when you have, you cannot take on an old garment, like you can't take old jeans and then go and take a, a, a cut a piece of like a wool sweater and try to patch that up. Like, oh, there's a torn knee here. I'll take a little wool sweater patch and put it on there and then throw it in the wash and the dryer because eventually what happens is the wool will shrink, obviously, and it will tear both garments. And Jesus is saying, there is a new way of doing stuff and you cannot simply take the new thing and just sort of fit it into the old thing. It will not work. You think that it will work. You want it to work. You have a system that you like already and you want it to work, can't work. There needs to be a completely new thing. And then he goes on this other analogy, which is a little bit lost on us, which is this wineskins analogy. You see, the way that wine was carried back in the first century was through a, a, a skin, usually of a goat or a lamb or something. They would, they would make a, a, you know, a, a vessel to hold all this stuff. And they'd put wine in it. As the wine fermented, the, the skin would stretch. And an old wineskin would no longer have its pliability. And so you can't put new wineskin in an old wine. You can't put new wine in an old wineskin because it's already rigid and then it will burst. And Jesus is saying, again, making the point twice, you cannot have the new thing and hold on to the old thing. You cannot take what you already know and have believed and understood and want it to be all, everything's working great. You, want, you cannot have the new thing and the old thing. And, and the way this works for us, slightly different than what's happening here, is that we have a way of doing things. Every one of us does. Whether or not you're new to Jesus or you've been walking with him for a long time, we adopt practices. We adopt rituals. They may not be expressly for worship, but we adopt ways of doing things. And there's a part of us that really longs for God to come into our life and make that way of doing stuff just a little bit better. 
We're really uncomfortable with the idea of an overhaul, of our whole life being made new. We like the idea of our life being a little bit tuned up. But an overhaul, we're not really ready for. You see, for me as a, as a dad on Mother's Day, I think about things like that. I think about the, the direction and the force of my own anger. And I go, what I really want, my dark heart of hearts, is I want that to just be okay. I want, I want that stuff that I, whatever I say in anger to my kids, whatever it is that is a, would clearly be classified as an overreaction, I want that stuff, I want God to look at me and go, it's fine. Your kids are going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about the things you say. They, they're resilient. It won't matter. What I'm finding is that God's pretty serious about the things that I'm angry about and being frustrated that my kids lost their shoes or that they don't get in the car fast enough or they don't get their homework done or they leave a mess in their room. Those aren't things about which my anger should be directed. There is not just a new patch we put on an old system. It is a whole new life God wants to give to us, and that is really, really hard. Because I have an emotional attachment to the way my life is presently. I like the way that it looks. I like the way that it works. I, do, I don't want a new thing. And Jesus is saying there is only the new thing. The old thing and the new thing are not compatible. Verse 39. And no one after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say, the old is better. I have a blanket that I hold on to every night. I have my life that I hold on to every single night, and you can't simply give me a new one and call it better. It just doesn't work that way. The old is better. And Jesus looks at us and goes, is the old really better? Is this the way that you had anticipated your life going? Or are you looking for there to be a new way of living, a new kind of life, not simply one that's sort of a patch on an old garment? Because most of us, if we evaluated our lives, we had a real pragmatic conversation. We just kind of said, okay, how's this working for you? Most of us are looking for a whole new life. We just aren't willing to let go of the old life. This is a radical departure from the old way of life. It is in such a way, not simply saying, I just want to have a little... I want to get some stuff from God and keep everything the same. See, the problem is that anything that's sort of good and sacred, it's not that those are just problematic. It's that, that we can actually manipulate sacred things like fasting or ritual, everything we've kind of got in our own life that we kind of have made and made a part of us. We actually can make those things about worshiping us. And we can wonder why God doesn't do our own will more often than not. When I was at summer camp as a kid, we used to do this thing, and I, 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 have, I researched it with a few people, and it turns out this, I'm not the only person who did this. This is the most bizarre thing we ever did. So at a campfire, you're all sitting around a campfire, big bonfire, wherever it is, and you're sitting there, and you know, whether it's, it doesn't matter, actually doesn't matter the size of the fire, but if, we're all sitting around it. And the, the, the summer camp counselor people are leading some kind of song or whatever it is that we're supposed to be singing and doing, and, and what we were told as little kids is when the smoke blows in your face from the fire, you're supposed to repeat something under your breath. Okay? And the one we repeated was, I love chickens and bunny rabbits. You're like, really, what? Did anybody have a thing you repeated at summer camp with a smoke in your face in the camp? Anybody else have this? Nobody else had this? Am I, and our staff, no, you're just not admitting it. Yeah, you guys had it. Yeah, yeah. Well, what was yours? What did you, you guys repeat? 
I love something, something about rabbits, right? I don't know how rabbits involve the camp. It's like I talked to someone from Michigan, our junior high pastor, Hillary. I'm like, so what you, she goes, yeah, I love bunny rabbits or something. I was like, you love bunny rabbits? You know, no, hers was I hate bunny rabbits. I was like, yours was I hate them? Yeah, I hate them, love them, whatever it is. But you're supposed to say the smoke's blowing in your face. And you're supposed to say, I love bunny rabbits, I love bunny rabbits, I love bunny rabbits, I, I love chickens and bunny rabbits, I love chickens and bunny rabbits. And so people, oh, you have all these little kids sitting around a fire. I love chickens and bunny rabbits, I love chickens and bunny rabbits. It burns my eyes, I love chickens. Say it louder. And if it's smoke, presumably, if the smoke's still in your face, you don't mean it enough. You better mean it that you actually love chickens and bunny rabbits. I really love chickens and bunny rabbits. I really love chickens. And it's like the smoke's in your face, and you better mean it because the wind hasn't changed yet. Now, some of you are like, that's so absurd. That's just so, that's so dumb. Because you're trying to manipulate something over which you have no direct control by saying a little incantation. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. All of you do this. Have you ever been bowling? You have, you have bowled a ball down an, down an aisle and you have attempted to steer that ball. It's now out of your hands and yet you do this. Ah, ha, some of you Superman, come on. Lean out, come on. Like there's a part of you that does. You know, if anyone asks you, do you actually think you can control the ball? No, well, I don't know, maybe. maybe. I coach soccer. I coach little kids soccer. And I observe it in myself. I observe it in other people. I have watched people do this. If you watch a coach or other parents, you watch them standing up. They will, they will pantomime the moves they want their kids to do at the time. Shoot it, shoot it, shoot it, shoot. <laughs> kick it. Shoot it. Get there, get there. They do it all the time. There is something in our nature about trying to manipulate things that are beyond our control with whatever means are available to us, even if they're absurd. Jesus is looking at some of these things, which are otherwise good, that have become a way to manipulate God for the people who follow him. And he's saying, don't make it about that. Don't make it about that. Here's what it says in Isaiah. This is just give you a, a sense of what this looks like. Isaiah 50, 58, 3. Uh, why, have, why have we fasted, they say? I mean, these are people looking at God saying, why have we fasted? And you have not seen it. Why have we humbled yourselves and you have not noticed? In other words, we're doing all the stuff. We're saying chickens and bunny rabbits. We're leaning over at the bowling alley. We're watching the kids' soccer game. We're doing whatever it is we got to do. We're doing all that stuff. And you don't seem to be responding. What's up with that, God? I mean, we're doing all the rituals. We got the fasting. We got the, like, you know, whatever sacrifice we're supposed to be doing. When we got the tithing going. Whatever it is. Why aren't you responding? To which God says this. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. By the way, if I ever have a punk band, it will be called Wicked Fists. That's the greatest band name ever. Right. Wicked Fists. Right. Right. Anyway. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. In other words, there is a whole life dedicated to this kind of following of me, God is saying. And because on one day you do it right, it doesn't make it all awesome. I want your whole life, your whole self, everything that you've got, I want that for you. And I want that to be part of what it means to worship me. Don't just simply give to me. A few rituals and call it, look at me, I'm so dedicated to you. If you do this, you have missed it all, he says. You see, and the idea of using these things to get God to do stuff is based on a belief that God is already withholding from you. That he is so reluctant to give to you the life that he intends you to have. 
And that the only way you're going to be able to pry it from his unwilling hands is if you use the special incantation or the special magic ritual to get him to do it. That's not how God operates. He walks among us. His intention is to be our God, for us to be his people, to know him face to face, to speak with him. Some indicators, perhaps, in your life, if you're holding on to this kind of thinking, is if you cannot celebrate with other people the life of freedom that they have. If in some possibility in your life there is a self-validation or a self-superiority by which you look at other people and go, well, I can't believe those people do. I've seen some people do some things. I'm so glad I'm not like them. If just even a little hint of that, maybe you've misplaced the ritual, the right good things that God has placed in your life. If you've ever acted in some way, perhaps, or believed in your heart, kind of like a junior high girl trying to get a guy to notice her, oh, I wore the right clothes. I, start, I started listening to the band he likes. I follow him on Instagram now. And he, doesn't, he didn't say anything to me. What will it take for you to notice me? Some of us have lived with that reality and believe that God has not noticing us. Usually it's in the times of deep pain and we go, God, what was I supposed to do differently? And what we actually end up doing is we create a scenario in our lives in which God, Jesus is almost completely unnecessary. Because what we're saying is, there's a way to manipulate God to give to us the life we always wanted and we don't, we, it's just up to us. That's not what it's about. You see, there's a perfect example of what this actually looks like today on Mother's Day. Perfect example. If only one day of your life, you tell your mom that you love her. If only on one day of your life, you, you know, make some plans or send flowers or whatever it might be, you've lost what this is really about. Because on the other days, wicked feasts. But on Mother's Day, we're all wonderful. Where's my mom? Where, she's here somewhere. Where is she? She's back there. Mom, come up here. She, just, she hates this. She does not want to be on stage. <clears throat> all, yeah, all the way up here. Don't stand down there. Come up here. Let everybody see your pretty outfit. <laughs> okay, so this is my mom. I love my mom. Okay? This, yeah, they're clapping. These guys clapped already. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they get a turn. Okay. Um, I just want you guys to understand, you know, for me and how, you know, I want them to hear me do this in front of them. You know, mom, you are, um, you know, you're, you're probably the most heroic person. Don't look right at me. You have to look kind of, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Probably the most heroic person I know. Um, I know being, now being a parent and watching how hard it is to be a parent, those of you guys who have little kids know, I know how difficult, it, I can only imagine how difficult it must have been to not have another person helping you raise me. Um, I, you know, you have you've kept the big picture of my future in mind since I was, you know, really little. Um, you had, I, I remember specifically being at, um, I went to high school like 45 minutes or so from my house. And, I rem- and you worked another 30 minutes the other direction. And I, there was a couple times where I know that you drove, leaving meetings early in which people were looking at you going, you can't leave this meeting. And you said, yes, I can. You might be fired tough. I got to go get my son who's sitting out, you know, I was a freshman in high school sitting out there after soccer practice and you drove up and then we would drive home and I would say, oh my gosh, I forgot a, I forgot a math book. Can you drive me another 45 minutes back to the school to pick up my math book? To which you were upset, but still did it. And I, 
couldn't figure out why. What's the big deal? It's only another hour and a half of driving <laughs> for you. But I'm so grateful to you, Mom. I, you know, um, I'm grateful to you as a, you're an excellent grandmother. You know, I'm so, I'm so proud of you. I love, that, I love that this is your home church. I love that people get to be greeted by you. I love that you're taking pictures of moms out there next to our picture. Of, you know, of, can we put that picture up there again that, that humiliates me of me and my mom in a tent just to compare? Do we still have that? We don't have that? No, they can't find it back there. That's right. If they put it up there, we'll just we'll react to it. But okay. until then, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep vamping until that happens. There it is. So there we are. And I do apologize for your being in matching outfits. I know. <laughs> See, is she not the best? So today, you guys, affirm your mothers. Affirm your wives. If your wives are mothers, let them know how much you appreciate them. And don't make this the only day that you do it. Make an extension of what's already been affirmed in their life. This is what God's speaking about. Thank you, Mom. Oh, sweetie. Love you. Oh, <laughs> What God is talking about here is about a whole life dedicated to him. Not just ritual, not just practice, not just coming to church, not holding it over someone else's head that you're following along in the one-year Bible reading plan and you're not one day behind. I'm, I'm a day behind, but it doesn't matter. I don't want to brag about that. But, you know, that's not what it's about. He's like, I want your whole heart. Look what it says in the bottom of your outline as we begin to sort of close up here. Psalm 138 says this, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart before the gods. I will sing your praise. What's being said here is this. The, old, the, the one translation of the Bible says, uh, I will praise thee, Lord, with my whole heart. Meaning, it's not just about the rituals. The rituals have to be some kind of expression of the stuff that's already there. So celebrate your moms and go big. Do it. Because it's an expression of your whole heart. Jeremiah says this. This is God speaking. He says, I will give them a heart to know me. These are people who are wandering away from him. I'll give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. And so every week as we gather, we get an opportunity to respond to who God is with all of who we are. We call it worship. But it isn't just what we do in this room. It's about the whole of our lives. Where the whole of our lives is influenced and is being influenced by who God is. And it's influencing other people because we walk with him. And so when we're here on Sunday and we sing and we pray, it's not just simply, not just simply, oh, well, this is the time where I do my worship. It's an extension of what's already true. And so that's why we worship. With our whole heart. And sometimes it comes out with our voices or with the hands up or the hands out. Maybe it comes with eyes closed. But so we worship. God is not after your religious practices. He does not intend for you to manipulate him with the right incantation. He already wants to walk with you. He already believes that you want to walk with him and believes that you need him. Let's pray together and then we'll respond together in worship. Father, we're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you're patient with us. We're grateful that you have found a way into our own hearts in a way that we can't even explain. Jesus, we know that there are times that we try to make you about what you can give to us. Father, we're needy kids. We don't always know. Father, we're the kids who say, why can't you pick me up and then demand to be taken back to school when we forgot our homework and you do it. Jesus, we're grateful that you have given to us a proper and right way to worship you. And that it is not about, it's not about technical ritual. It's about the outpouring of our heart. And so we have freedom in that. 
We get to have joy in that. We get to celebrate and smile because, Father, you're at work in our lives. And so, Jesus, as we sing, as we respond, as we raise hands, as we come forward to receive prayer, those of us who are looking to have our hearts mended in prayer that you might meet us, Father, we're grateful that we can celebrate with you. That you are not reluctant, that we're not prying blessing from your hands, but that you would pour it out upon us because you love us, because we're your kids. And so, Jesus, hear our prayer in song. Hear our prayer as we pray with our, our, our people around us, with people that would come forward to be prayed for. Hear us. Amen.